Hello and welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome back to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. We are so happy to have our guests on for this episode. We don't have one guest. We don't have two guests. We've got three guests. And you might even hear my dog snoring in the background. I don't know. Can you hear my dog snoring in the no, background? I okay, hear good. It. All right. <laughs> That'll be our fourth guest. Uh, Morocco, <laughs> this greater Swiss mountain dog snoring in the background. <laughs> but we've got three guests that are just finishing will have just finished their first semester at their first kind of full tenure track job they've uh, been on the job market and did all the applications and interviews and um, have landed jobs in different parts of the country and so we thought it'd be fun to do a conversation with them just to talk about their experience because we know we have folks who are in graduate programs and on the job market listening to this episode so it'd be nice to kind of talk about talk to them about what's it like right now because uh, all all three of us have not been on the job market for some time at least and so we're thrilled to have our three guests Matt Billick, Richard Desnord, and Megan Lyons with us so let's uh, read their bios before we get into the conversation. So we'll start with uh, Matt. All right. Matthew Billick is currently assistant professor of music theory at Anderson University. He's a graduate of Indiana University and a recent graduate of the University of North Texas. And he studies Fond de Siècle French music, Foray, 20th century neoclassical music, and modalism after the 19th century. He's also passionate about incorporating popular music into his theory classrooms. He enjoys playing piano, composing, and road tripping in his free time. And Richard, we're happy to have you back on the podcast. Richard Desenord is an assistant professor of music theory at Michigan State University with research interest in contemporary gospel and neo-soul. But he also enjoys all aspects of music theory from other genres. Previously, he was a lecturer of music theory at Howard University. Hailing from Washington, D.C., he earned a BM in music education from Howard University, an MA in music theory from Penn State University, and a PhD in music theory from the Eastman School of Music. One of his personal and professional goals is to make music theory more accessible to and inclusive of people of color. And last but not least is Megan Lyons. Uh, she is a first year assistant professor of music theory at Furman University. Her research areas include the female singer songwriter, Joni Mitchell's alternate guitar tunings and music theory pedagogy. In 2020, she founded SMT Pod, the Society for Music Theory's premier audio publication, to make peer review more transparent and to showcase scholarly work in a new medium. In her free time, Megan likes to complete escape rooms, of which she has done nearly 30 and escaped them all. That is quite the flex. That's really because, impressive. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> the first one that I did, I think, Jen, you were maybe been at the same I room. was there, yeah. We did not escape. We failed. No, we blew up <laughs> Nevada or something. I don't know. <laughs> yes, we died in a nuclear yeah. explosion or something like that. So the knowledge um, of Glarionis and 12 I do remember. you out. 
No, there were no <laughs> clues related to uh, the Guidonian hand. No, but I do remember <laughs> that Paul got so intensely focused that he was like, I'm looking for a six digit number. I'm looking for a six digit number. And I was like, I've got one right here. And he's like, just, I need just one six digit number. I was like, this one in my hand is six digits. <laughs> really just couldn't even hear what people were saying. No, it was intense. Was it was intense. Yeah. <laughs> it was. It was. Sorry, Nevada. Yes, we, sorry, we Nevada. <laughs> Next time, get Megan Lyons oh in gosh. that room. All right. That's okay. right. <laughs> I did not realize how many materials I needed to have ready to go. You know, I, I knew about the cover letter and the CV, but all of these statements and examples and things like that my goodness i <laughs> i could not have predicted that i kept i felt like a magician i just kept pulling things out of a hat as the applications kept coming out <laughs> i didn't realize how much more i would bond with students being a full-time teacher i for some reason um i just feel more responsible for them having them for more classes now so um, it's just great to have that closeness with students First and foremost, life is not over if the job market doesn't go well. And I think the reason why I say that, it's very easy to say that as somebody that has a job and that had one before, but really that was something that kept my mind at ease throughout any of those processes. Again, we are so happy to have you three on the podcast to talk a little bit about your own experience um, recently being in the job market and uh, now uh, with a full-time job and, and kind of chatting with, with you about your experiences and so sharing with that with us and with any of our listeners who might be in a similar boat as you are or maybe will be um, in the coming coming years. And so before we, though, get into that, we always like to ask a little bit uh, about uh, your background a little bit. And so maybe just a little brief couple minute uh, intro on how you got into music theory and um, you know maybe was it because you could still possibly have snow days like when you were in elementary school <laughs> and, still, still thing. and so uh, Richard since you've been on the show before why don't you go first yeah thanks for having me and thanks for having all of us for this um, a bit about my background and how I got into theory um, I always tell people I got into it like in middle school but um, yeah, my introduction theory was through my private lessons and my teacher would basically ask me to, he would give me a couple scales. I don't think he gave me like C, F and G. And he would also make me, because I didn't have the range as a beginner, um, he would make me go up to like the like a C major scale, go up to C in the staff. And then when I get a little bit more, go up to E, go up to G. And he did the same thing with F and G. And I remember thinking like, there was always this pattern. Like I was stopping either on the first, the third, the fifth of uh, the scale. And I still, I found that in my parents' house, like my old stuff from middle school. But yeah, that was my introduction. And he did not teach me the rest. And he did not give me the sheet music or the notes for the, the mm. scales. I had to essentially figure out what to do from there. So that was like my introduction to theory and like the finding the patterns and finding all these relationships and then finding like these core progression stuff within it. So, um, yeah, that was like my beginner, uh, steps into theory. Yeah. You had that inquisitive mind of wanting to know like what, what, what what's going on. Yeah. Hopefully that was it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And Megan, I see you're next on my, my circle here. 
<laughs> well, thank you guys so much for having me. Um, I have to say my uh, story is a little bit similar to Richard's in terms of having these experiences of um, perhaps in middle school or high school band directors kind of trying to challenge me to search for some different things. Um, but I will say I originally wasn't going to go into music at all. Uh, I had dreams of being a biomedical engineer. I was a, a giant nerd. Mm. Um, I guess I still am. I, I can't really <laughs> can't really get rid of that label. Um, but someone told me I was good at music. I think it was my uh, one of my high school band directors. So I started you know, getting more serious about flute playing. I took AP theory. Um, my two college theory professors, Phil Duker and Danny Stevens, made me fall in love with theory. Um, I still wanted to teach though. And then I found out you could be a theory professor. And I thought, huh, I guess that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. We just had Phil uh, on the, on the podcast uh, last month or so. So he's super great. So awesome. And then Matt. So very similar to all of y'all. Um, I started private lessons. My private piano teacher got me into theory with um, that old uh, golden uh, theory book. Uh, we'd work out of that. And actually, I would practice more out of that than I would the actual piano lessons. So she kind of got angry at that. But I love theory so much. Um, and it also stemmed probably from band and uh, orchestra playing and youth symphonies, uh, ensemble playing. I would ask for the scores from the conductor after the concert because I wanted to study and read them because I just loved all these cool sounds from the orchestra. So um, that kind of led to me job shadowing in middle school and high school uh, theory people around town and um, bring in my uh, big giant poster of like parallel fifth and everything to class for job shadow day to share with my other classmates. And it was super, super nerdy, but I guess it was, it was meant to be. <laughs> I, I want to know what town you grew up in where they were people doing theory <laughs> jobs that you could shadow. Just curious. <laughs> not not many. Uh, South Bend. So I went to Notre Dame. Uh, I think Ethan Hamo was working there at the, yeah. So I studied him for a little bit. <laughs> oh yeah, small town. Some community colleges as well. But That's great. That's great. And, and now, um, that's great. You all kind of talked about your really early background uh, just starting. And now you've you've completed your graduate work and now you are at different various universities. So maybe kind of go, go around and um, tell us where you finished or where you got your doctorate and then uh, where you're currently teaching. So I got, I finished my degree last year. Yay. Um, in theory at Eastman school of music. Um, yeah. And where are you at now? Oh, sorry. So, yeah, I finished at Eastman, and I am currently at Michigan State University, uh, assistant professor of music theory. Uh, so I, I keep copying Richard. I also graduated uh, this past year, uh, May 2022, from the University of Connecticut. Go Huskies. Um, I got my Ph.D. in music theory and history, and now I am assistant professor of music theory uh, here at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. I went to IU for my undergrad and master's um, for uh, music education and music theory. And then I went to uh, UNT. That's how I met uh, Graf and um, um, Dr. Weaver as well um, down in the Dallas area and graduated uh, technically August, just last August of 2022. Um, so it was a really quick turnaround. I was, mm. um, I was really busy this summer <laughs> wrapping up the dissertation <laughs> and moving. But um, and now I teach at Anderson University. Um, liberal arts college just outside of indianapolis excellent so one of our thoughts about 
this discussion that we're going to have is that you all have recently been on the job market. It's been like 10 years for me. So, and uh, that was pre-pandemic. So everything feels different now. Can you tell us what it was like to be on the job market last year or the last couple of years? How, were there lots of jobs available? Were there very few? Were you, you know, what kinds of materials were they asking for? All those things. What was the process like? Sure. So uh, I probably took a, a, a rather extreme approach to the job market last year. I was so afraid um, after hearing like the war stories from everybody uh, that I applied to 45 jobs, um, <laughs> some that I probably was not very qualified for. Um, I, I did have a degree in theory and history, so I applied to some musicology jobs, some interdisciplinary type jobs, even some kind of admin ones. Um so I just kind of, I, I threw my name out there and just prayed that something would stick. Um, and I, I learned a lot on the market. I'm curious to hear what Matt and Richard say, but uh, I did not realize how many materials I needed to have ready oh. to go. You know, I, I knew about the cover letter and the CV, but all of these statements and examples and things like that, my goodness, I <laughs> I could not have predicted that. I kept I felt like a magician. I just kept pulling things out of a hat as the applications kept coming out. I was going to say 45 jobs. That's like basically another job that you had was applying for all of those jobs. <laughs> that's yes. so much. No doubt. I, yeah, I, that's crazy. I would definitely brag about my um, Google Excel sheet that I had. It had every column. I I swear I could write a, an article on the statistics of last job market season because I know what everybody wanted, when they wanted it, when people found out on the, the dreaded jobs wiki. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, does one of you want to take it? <laughs> sure, I, I'll go. Uh, really quick. Um, very similar experience. Uh, it was a quick turnaround and I was gearing up for um, the next year right after I um, got my degree. And so I was looking again, um, job, the job wiki was really an invaluable resource for that. Um, also the SMT website. Um, and there's also, I think I had in, Indeed and LinkedIn just kind of like floating out there. I uh, found out some, some jobs are definitely only on certain sites. So um, it helps to like, have all four or like even more um, on your, on your tab favorites. Um, same thing with you. I was kind of surprised at all the different requirements. Um, I knew that research statements, philosophy, and probably a diversity statement was something I was going to need. So I prepared those kind of early on, but um, cover letters, I had a general cover letter, so I had that ready, but um, I think I got better responses the more I personalized things, um, which takes a lot more time. So um, if you could have something general, I would, I would have something general and then try to personalize. Again, that takes time. And um, I don't think I apl applied to 45 um, at the time because I was just about to graduate, but it was a quite quite a few. So um, yeah, it's a numbers game also, <laughs> I would say. Um, yeah, it's good that I went last because my mine was like the complete opposite. I was at Howard already and people would always ask me over the years, you know, when I was at Eastman or even before that, you know, you're going to get this terminal degree in theory. What do you want to do? And I always had this dream of teaching theory in an HBCU because people with terminal degrees don't normally go into those sorts of markets. And I'm a product of one. Um, I'm a product of Howard University music ed program. So, yeah, I was already in a job that I thought, OK, this would probably be a job for life sort of thing. And 
I started to see maybe I might have to to look elsewhere some of the things that were going on without getting to specifics. But yeah, I didn't even know about the job wiki. I didn't know that was a thing. Um, I didn't I wasn't really looking. And I think someone recommended me for the the Michigan position. And then I just I kind of like pushed it to the side and then I thought, okay, maybe I'll just put in an application. Um if I wanted to go the route of, you know, doing that big, you know, pool of uh, applications, I luckily had uh, experience through Eastman or just like workshops that they would do like once or twice a year. Um, people who recently got jobs would come back. So if they graduated from Eastman, um, even if they had been out for a while and they had a job for a bit, they would come back and then tell us, you know, this is what I submitted. These are the things that I submitted. These are the jobs that I did not get. These are jobs I did get. Here's what I did for this one, blah, blah, blah. And I mean, we had really detailed packets that they would give out um, to let us know. So I think if I went that route, I probably would have, I wasn't concerned so much about like the materials they asked for, but yeah, I applied to Michigan and went through the steps. Um, I was, I just have to say this, like I was extremely lucky in that process because it was a job that I felt like fit for me. I didn't have any qualms about like leaving my position at Howard, given what I was expecting at Michigan. It was like, it was a perfect process through and through. And it wasn't like they just gave me a job. I had to work for it, but of course, yeah, I, I don't, I didn't go through that like the nightmare scenario that a lot of people do. And I also knew that if I didn't get the job that I would have been fine. Like I would have been in my hometown working at a place where I wanted to work, but yeah, I, I can't stress it enough. I'm very lucky because I hear all the horror stories about job market stuff. And I finally looked at the page once, I think over the summer, the wiki page and yeah. And I see all like the, the diatribes at the end and stuff. And I'm like, wow, I didn't think theory was this intense. Um, but I mean, if you're looking for a job, especially after a pandemic, like it's not going to help that, you know, the jobs are limited, but yeah, I have to keep saying I'm very, very lucky. Like it was a lot of weird things that happened. Like I got there and it was like the student on my committee graduated from the same high school I did. And like my hotel room number was my birthday. It was just a bunch of weird things that kept coming up. And I was just like, and the more that happened, that's just like the tip of it. Like one of my students, I think he was like dating someone in my class at Howard. Like it was like one of the students in the guest class teaching at Michigan. So that was a very, very weird experience. It was just like, I got back to the hotel. I was like, I probably should come here. So yeah. <laughs> the universe is telling you. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe we can unpack a little bit the the stages and kind of what materials y'all were submitting. I'm sure it wasn't the same for every job, but maybe we can try to go into, I'm personally curious about teaching videos and what is required. And I ask that because I always try to record my TFs and try to get a really good 15 minute video. And sometimes, you know, for whatever reason, that 15 minute segment was just not going to work. You know, and you got to come back the next day, you know, somebody asked an oddball question that they were kind of caught off guard and then things kind of got derailed or, you know, for whatever reason. But, you know, how many, um, as far as the materials, were a lot of them asking for teaching videos? And then was it a 15 to 20 minute video? I'm just kind of curious um, for, for that portion. 
I can start this one. Um, as far as teaching videos were concerned, um, I think the ones that I saw, I, I didn't mention that uh, it was a couple other schools that had reached out to me and I put in an application, but I quickly like withdrew it before the process went on. But yeah, the teaching video thing, I think it was about between all of them average, like 10 to 15, uh, 10 to 20 minutes that I saw, but I think about 10 to 15. I think I had a similar experience. I was only asked for teaching videos. um, I think in maybe two of the initial rounds and then maybe twice when I had made it past that first initial cut, I think one school may have asked for 30 minutes and that um, seemed a bit much. Uh, So personally, I, I tried to divide it into like three 10 minute segments just because I didn't want them to get bored of learning about triads or how does a scale work? So I tried to have a little variety. Um, I also was lucky that I had some teaching videos from COVID from when we were online. So I threw a couple of those in there um, to, to kind of show off my, my YouTuber personality of throw that in the chat and, and, you know, give me a thumbs up. So I thought mm-hmm. I tried to just do some things that were a little different um, to, to set my teaching video apart. Sure. Yeah, that's hard. That's tricky. Cause you know, you feel like, well, what am I going to do? What lesson am I going to choose? Am I going to choose like intervals? Are we going to try to go like there's something super advanced or there's so many different directions you can go with it. And a lot of times yeah. they don't tell you, they just send a 15 minute video <laughs> of something, you know, you have any idea what to do. Exactly. Well, and you're totally right that a half an hour, even if you, you know, so if you have taught whole class periods and you have recordings of whole class periods, if you are fully talking for 30 minutes of a 50 minute class period, your mm-hmm. students are not working at their desks very hard. So, <laughs> I mean, like that's, that is a longer video, but I do feel like a lot of the jobs that asked for those when I was on the market 10 years ago, were asking for like a whole class period. So I'm kind of glad to hear that people have said how about 10 minutes? Cause that's much more reasonable and it's more reasonable for them. They're not going to watch a whole class period of, you know, okay, everybody, this is what a perfect fifth is. You know, they already know all that. So mm-hmm. I'm glad to hear some things have evolved. Did you want to add anything, Matt? Oh, sure. Yeah. I would say, um, it's, it's, I didn't see too many uh, requirements, uh, mostly maybe like two or three instances, um, at least right up front. Um, and I definitely agree with Megan that, Oh, those COVID um, lessons really came in handy. I need to probably diversify that by this point, but I also try to break it down by like a short, like 10 minute lesson on chromaticism or like uh, modulation and oral skills. Um, try to keep it bite-sized because I know they get really bored. And especially when they're watching kids just like write or like <laughs> during my dictation, for example, like that doesn't really sh- sh- uh, show your strengths um, exactly. But um I was going to say about that. Um, oh, YouTube unlisted links. I use that a lot because uh, a lot of times you, they only give you so many areas to upload files and they're asking you for all this material. So I think just giving a YouTube link or having a website or something is really helpful too. That came in handy mm-hmm. too. I was like, just follow this link for all these lessons. And they, I had like three options, like starting with my be- my most confident one because um, file sizes is, or can get complicated. And I was just going to say in general, like, I think it's a good idea to to record regularly and you can always throw it out. So if you didn't like the lesson, just go to your phone and press delete or something that day. But um, (laughs) yeah, I only say that because I like I said, I wasn't on the market and I kind of just 
like fell into it with one job. But yeah, I think when it came up, I was just like, oh, I need to record. And again, got very lucky. I just set up my phone one day and it captured a really great lesson. I think it even captured the beginning. Like the students were really like jovial. It was a day I also decided to do a piano, like a, put the class in the piano room. And I did not expect it to go well. I just said, okay, I'm just going to start doing this every day and then take one. It was like, oh, great. Because the next class, it did not go well at all. And it wasn't like it bond, but it was just like, yeah, just I I, I just tell people if you got it, uh, if you have the chance to do it, just buy an old iPod touch or something and just record every day. Just set it up, mm-hmm. charge it, record every day. And yeah, that good lesson, you'll never know because you'll have a great lesson and you'll be really upset when it was nothing there to capture it, like that tree falls in the forest sort of thing. That's so wise too, because oftentimes if I am recording myself or if someone's observing and I haven't been observed in a while, you have that sort of like, you know, theater teacher, you know, robot thing going at first, if you're uncomfortable or you're remembering that the camera's there and you're trying to, you know, so the more that you record yourself, the more comfortable you are, or the less you're thinking about it being running in the back of the room and you just do your thing. And that tends to be when we're at our best anyway. Very true. So let's move on to the actual um, interview process. So I'm assuming you all were on campus, you all probably had some different steps, maybe phone or Zoom interview kind of session, but then you all made it to campus. And mm-hmm. uh, did you have, like Richard, have these um, universe experiences where, <laughs> you know, the <laughs> I just love, I love the room number was your birthday. I love, I just, I like, I like that so much. Like there was this like, they're like these serendipitous moments because it is about fit. I mean, it's about mm-hmm. fit for you all and it's fit for the university as well. And so mm-hmm. how did how did the kind of the on-campus uh, kind of experience go? We can start with you, Matt. So just to clarify, it's the being invited in person. Yeah. It was it was stressful at first because my, my flight was canceled at like 6 a.m. Oh, uh, so I had a really, I, I was on the phone with the dean, like, I'm trying really hard. Luckily, I got in that day, so I was still able to make the the dinner with some of the faculty and their, their sp- uh, spouses, which was great. Um, and that was a great way to click. Um, next day was a full day of, I taught two two classes, uh, one oral skills, one theory, both second level. Um, so applied chords and then chromaticism, which was kind of nice <laughs> related. Uh, and then a couple interviews with um, the provost, the dean and um Speaking with some of the faculty members, like uh, the, my colleague, uh, Chris Holmes, uh, who's the musicologist there, it was really, really great. Um, all very, very warm. And I um, I never realized what a how important it is to visit in person. I, I mean, I see why they do this. I, it sounds kind of obvious, but I was like, you know, oh, this job, just, you know, give me this job. But going there, like you learn so many things and you're able to ask so many other questions that... Um, it just pop up like facilities. You see the facilities and you see your office and um, you get to meet some of the kids too. And then it's about that fit. Like you said, like, you know, right away, like you have a kind of a gut feeling too, if this is good or if it's, you know, something you want to like think about a little bit more, but in general, mine was very positive. <laughs> so um, I had four on-campus interviews. Um, I won't 
obviously name any names other than Furman, but I had a very similar situation to Richard in terms of there being kind of signs. Um, so uh, the, Furman was my third on-campus interview and three is my lucky number. Um, their address is 3300, I think it's Poinsett Highway. Um, there was a random slip of paper in my room that said 13. I have no idea where it came from. It didn't come from my bag. There were just signs everywhere. Um, our school colors are purple and I'm obsessed with the color purple. It was a whole thing. Um, but I have to say, I was kind of surprised by the whole on-campus process. Um, being a grad student and, and kind of being in like a, a more subservient position for all these years i i felt like i was almost royalty like they were paying for everything and being taken to fancy dinners and and people driving you around bringing you snacks and stuff it was it was actually a very lovely experience i i'm you know i can't say where else i went um but i i enjoyed all of my on-campus interviews and i felt very lucky at all of them and i felt you know, even even though obviously Furman stole my heart, um, I still saw myself potentially working at all those places. So it's actually a, a pretty nice experience, but very, very tiring. I've never been more tired in my life. <laughs> yeah, you pretty much go from no go nonstop. Like once you get picked up from the hotel, it's just like you're on for you know, for 12 hours or whatever, you're just hoping that dinner at the end doesn't go super late. And uh, <laughs> yes, I, I can't recommend enough packing light um, because something nobody warned me about was usually your last day you check out of the hotel and drag your bag around the music building mm. with you um, to, <laughs> to your last few interviews. I had some great um, search chair committees who put their stuff, uh, put my stuff in their car. Um, but yes, pack light because you will be lugging that around a lot in the, the two and a half days you're gone. <laughs> Very true. I think I, I traditionally try to pack light, but yeah, I didn't, it was like that day I had to take my stuff with me, but mine went, uh, I would say the same thing. I, I already mentioned some of it, but yeah, it was just like a bunch of things I felt like were pointing in the right direction. Um, when it came to like the minute I got there and it's like, like nothing went wrong. Even on my last day when I was supposed to leave, I'm, you know, doing my last few things on the itinerary. I'm supposed to go to the airport and it started snowing because it's Lansing. It snows all the time. So, yeah, it started snowing and I got snowed in that day, my last day, and I had to leave out the next day. And it was like while I was teaching, I think it was a oral skills course, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I was doing something that day and I think Mike Callahan, the chair of our uh, theory um, area, he just came and said, hey, you know, um, it's supposed to snow. They cancel your flight, but just know we uh, renewed your hotel stuff and everything. You're good to go. So you'll just go back and just relax for the rest of the day. And that was like a like a 30 second conversation. And then I just went to teach. And so it never felt like stressful or anything. I never felt like the day was like, you know, trudging along or something. It was just, yeah, every it was like every moment of the day, uh, both days I was there. It's just I even uh, that day, I think I was working on my intro to my dissertation and I got like half of it, like a, a draft of half of it done just because I had that extra day in there. So, yeah, we'll always find ways to work or do something. But, yeah, it was it was through and through. It was just a great experience. 
That's so good. I'm so happy to hear that. Why don't we move to thinking about like, now you're there. What's it like now that you're there? So my question is, what was your onboarding process like? And by that, I don't just mean like, did you meet with HR about your benefits? But like, did were you assigned a mentor who helped you find your office? Did you meet with other faculty on the first day? Was that an organized thing or was it casual? All those kinds of things that people might be wondering. I remember when I showed up at DBU my first day, I was like, okay, so now I go to my office and and then then what do I, then what do I do? <laughs> like I started before the semester started and, you know, I was like, I mean, I know I make like class materials, but am I supposed to be somewhere? How do people know I'm working? I don't know. I mean, like just those kinds of things. What was it like when you got started? Yeah, I moved to Lansing, I think June 1st. So I came a little bit early. Um, I just, I was kind of in the same position, uh, Matthew, um, yeah, just trying to wrap up things with my degree and just making sure um, that I had everything ready to go and I could start the semester in a smooth way or smoothest way possible. So, yeah, I moved, um, moved into my apartment, got everything done. Um, and the pedagogy conference was actually that same like first few days that I was here. So it was at Michigan State. So like I've put all my stuff in the, I got here at nine 30 in the morning, um, off the truck, put everything in and then drove the truck to the school and went to the conference. Um, and it was just like from there, like there were a lot of things that they wanted us to do as far as like onboarding and everything else like that. My process, because I got here so early, there were some things that I couldn't do because like I technically wasn't like had I wasn't all the way in the system just yet. I think the official start date was maybe the middle of August. Um, but I was able to do things like get an ID and explore the library, ride my bike around town, around campus. Um, and then once I start uh once I started getting closer to the beginning of semester, I started getting the emails and all of that stuff. And it's one of the joys of like breaks is that you don't hear that ping of your email constantly. Um but yeah, that ramped up around August. But yeah, we had a really good uh, we got a really good team here at Michigan. And the reason why I say that is that part of my process, like I didn't feel like I was like chartering into the unknown at any point in time. Um, they were very like forthcoming with information, whether it was like past syllabi or, you know, just helping me get acclimated to the building, you know. I got an email just like, hey, what what color do you want your office to be? And I was like, wait, what? Um, yeah, it was just like, it was, it was, they were very much on top of everything. So I never had to come in and be like, Hey, I need this. or I need that. It was, everything was already there. So that was my experience. Do you have two paint color options, green or white? I mean, what's they actually allowed me to do like an accent wall. They said, if you oh. want to do two different colors, like all this stuff. And oh. I was just like, uh, I thought I just needed a chair and a key, but, uh, yeah, they, they were there and it wasn't, it didn't feel like special treatment or anything else like that. I think the only people that weren't able to do that in the past were people who were hired or switched offices during the pandemic or during the shutdown. So of course, like things weren't able to get done. No one was in the building, but yeah, it was just like, everything was uh, a sort of like smooth laid out process, paperwork wise, everything. I don't, I don't remember if, having that be a disruption or something that was in the front or back of my mind. It was just like that gets done and you move on. All of our orientation stuff was online. So 
I asked for a fat head of Stevie Wonder, but I still haven't seen it in my office. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, so I feel very lucky. Uh, our onboarding process here at Furman is like a two-year process of orientations and training. So I had, I think it was two, two and a half weeks of in-person trainings, lunches, um, technology initiations, things like that leading up to the first week of classes. And, and that wasn't just the music department. We're, we're a very small liberal arts college here. So this was across campus. And then every other week, just about, we have a, a first year lunch where they teach us about Moodle or summer research or the tenure process. And that continues for the first two years here. So I feel very lucky that every time I think, oh my gosh, I don't know how to do this. I look on the calendar and usually two weeks later, they're teaching us how to do the mm -hmm. thing that I'm worried about. Um, and uh, I, I was also really fortunate when I found out about you know getting the job and they announced it. I think I had 10 or 11 of my music colleagues here immediately email me within five minutes, welcoming me reaching out, saying hi, um, shout out to, to Sue and Stacy, who immediately, when I planned a trip down to, to see the area, took us out to get biscuits and the real Southern experience. So it, I felt very welcomed and I, of course, still feel very welcome, but I feel lucky that um, I was never thrown in the deep end and I'm always able to get help and reach out for help. Okay, so far, bravo to these schools. They're doing a good yeah, job. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I had a colleague, I won't say where they work, but I had a colleague recently tell me that their onboarding was terrible, um, that they didn't have like half of the software access that they needed for the entire first year they worked there. One of the pieces of software they didn't even know existed. So, I mean, <laughs> like <laughs> they were just kind of trying to figure it out on their own. And they were like, how's everybody else getting all this information? So- kudos to your schools they're doing a good job that's terrifying yeah it's already enough to worry about when you're just getting started it's not even like if you had been <laughs> teaching for 20 years and you just get a new tenure track position it's like this is your first job and you want to do it well so yeah really really lucky exactly mine was pretty small pretty tiny i only had like a two and a half days of uh the week before uh, classes, which is pretty nice. Um, not like two weeks or something. Um, but uh, that was for new teachers. And then I think we had two half days for full-time faculty. So that wasn't too bad. And along with that, there was some online stuff, um, um, like library resources and um, the tech. People like to send over a lot of like phishing training, a lot of that type of training stuff uh, for us. Um, something that was unique with mine was um, theory camp, which was like a, a week long um, like run fundamentals or rudiments, uh, unofficial course, which I thought was great because it got the, the students primed for theory one. So I, um, I, again, I was asked to help out with that wasn't required, which was great. Um, so I did help out with that a little bit. It was great to meet the students. Um, but I was, I was very lucky, um, like y'all, because, um, they were very flexible with me knowing that I was new. Um, and they actually, um, they came to me and asked if I want, if I was, able to teach, take on this extra class, um, something that I'm not super familiar with, which, which is arranging and orchestration. And um, there's, they were very flexible. They were like, oh, if you didn't, if you don't feel comfortable doing that right now, if it's too much, you know, we can save it for next year, we can save it for later. So um, it really helps to, to know that beforehand, um, even if you don't to have faculty that's at least flexible and understanding of 
your, your position. Okay, talking about onboarding reminded me of this story, which is that part of mine was that all the new faculty that year have breakfast with the president in the president's dining room. It was very fancy. And so we all showed up for breakfast and we're all chatting and stuff and the cart rolls in with our food and it is literally Cheerios and milk. And that is all. And the president... That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. The president was like, what is happening here? (laughs) It turns out that like there'd been some sort of campus power outage in just the food storage area and all of the food had gone bad because the refrigerator broke down or something. So somebody ran to like 7-Eleven and bought the new faculty Cheerios and milk for breakfast. It was one of the funnier moments in my uh, first year for sure. So honey nut Cheerios. or just It wasn't regular. even that. Just plain Cheerios oh, plain. and milk. That was oh, it. No fruit. No, even worse. No, no, just, no sugar. Just like... <laughs> Cheerios and milk, and no I think there was coffee. The coffee might have even been like from Panera Bread or something because they didn't. They had nothing. They had nothing. So it was pretty funny. The president was like, uh, "This is not actually what I planned. I just want you to know that." <laughs> That's hilarious. It sounds so fancy, and then you're like, "Well, Cheerios. Okay, here we go <laughs> with my yeah. golden spoon wow. or whatever it was." <laughs> the whining and dining is done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got you now. <laughs> We are concerned about your heart health, though. Low cholesterol. <laughs> That's, That's the kind of thing that I like. Hope doesn't happen when you go on like that search committee dinner or something, where you go into a restaurant and it happens to be closed, or like somebody orders something and then it turns out to be they're allergic to something that they got on the plate because the person messed up, or like it's just like these things happen during mm. dinners, and you just kind of <laughs> hope that they don't during during your your particular one, you know, just to avoid that awkwardness of it, of watching the president eat a bowl of Cheerios, (laughs) like what? So what has kind of surprised you about your current current job as far as anything um, related to the students or how things have been different than maybe what you perhaps expected? And that could be related to the students or just the, the university or just that type of position that you're in now. I think for me, the the thing that I had heard about but wasn't really ready to experience was like the freedom and the independence of you're teaching this class. Have fun. I, I, I guess after being a grad student and always having that supervising professor who either creates a syllabus or kind of edits your syllabus, it was kind of like scary because I could do anything. I could design assignments the way I wanted. I could give a final. I could not give a final. And it it was just a little bit of too much unknown for me. I I guess I'm a little bit structured. Um, And also for me, the the whole idea of tenure, I'm curious to to hear from Richard and Matt about your guidelines. Um, I know my department is working towards getting us tenure guidelines. So that's a that's definitely something I didn't expect that getting tenure is still as mysterious as I thought it was 12 months ago. Um, part of my uh, process of like being onboarded and everything, or really after the onboarding process, but um, every new faculty member, I'm not sure if it's outside the school of music, but or college of music, but every new faculty member is assigned a, a faculty mentor. Um, and, I had already heard a lot about it from my Callahan, um, from my talks with him, uh, either virtually or like when I showed up to Lansing to look for an apartment, um, in May, like I had lunch with him and his, his family. So 
he would tell me about this process um, and also other things. Now we talk business all the time, but yeah, they have like the guidelines up. Um, I think as far as the only thing that's kind of unknown, and I don't want to say it's unknown. I think it's something you can't really put a number on it because like, let's say they say you have to have three publications or something like that, or five publications. Um, even if they're like reviewed or they're in like uh, actual, like an Oxford press book or something edited uh, collection or something like that, it, that could change. But yeah, I, I would say that's probably the only thing that isn't like set in stone, like the exact thing, the exact number or something like that, because some things might have a little bit more significance. Like if I get a book published by Cambridge press, like that'll probably take more precedence over me having a couple of blurbs somewhere else or a couple of articles. So um, but yeah, they have the 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 APT stuff up online. You can see a lot of that stuff up there. You can review it whenever you need to. The review process, um, the thing is like the first three years and then after that, the next three until you get tenure. Even that process about like when you sh- what you should expect when you get your like in class observation, um, the reflection letter you're supposed to write, like when you're supposed to submit that. All of that stuff is like detailed and in there. So, yeah, it's one of those, I, I cannot complain about anything. Like if if something goes wrong, just I'm saying it here. It's probably me. <laughs> well, I think one thing to to that is that was comforting to me was that um, on one of our onboarding meetings, the chancellor came in and she was like, "We want you to have tenure, get tenure." Like we hired you because we want you to stick around. So it's not like this thing that we're going to hold you against this thing that we hope you don't make it right. We hired you because we think you have the ability to get tenure. And mm-hmm. so it's not something that like, oh man, I hope we I hope you don't make it. No, they hired you because they think you can. And, uh, but yeah, it is, it is kind of scary, but I think as, as, as Richard mentioned, we had a three-year kind of kind of check-in. And so that's really helpful with like, probably you're like um your peer review committee because they mm-hmm. can be really helpful in kind of looking at what you, what you've done and saying, Hey, this is great. Keep doing that. Or, Hey, this is a little weak, you know, and then take that advice. And then, and then, um, cause they want you to be successful. They want you to get tenure, <laughs> but it does feel like another flaming hoop, you know, to go through, like you had the, dis- the qualification exams, the dissertation, tenure is just another big hoop, but they yeah. want you to succeed. Mm-hmm. I will say something that surprised me uh, going back to that point. Um, I didn't realize how much more I would bond with students being a full-time teacher. I, for some reason, um, I just feel more responsible for them, having them for more classes now. So um, it's just great to have that closeness with students on this other level, seeing them more often. And um, again, like, um, like Megan said, just um, being in charge of your materials more, it feels like your baby sort of, um, so um, with that being said, though, you, I've also learned that lesson planning your first year is real. It's um, a time eater. And yeah, it's, I'm learning to be more efficient with that, which is great. Um, and also keep, my, you know, keep publishing and do my own research, too, which really helps those days are awesome, as I'm sure you, you can uh, um, attest to. Uh, as far as tenure goes, uh, mine is a little more interesting because it's a smaller school. It's more teaching-based. And they made that very clear, which is kind of great. Um, it's not a publisher parish school. Um, so evaluations become very important. Um, they made that very clear. And I think that might be because it's a smaller school and so they take retention very seriously there. Mm-hmm. So um, that's kind of what I'm I'm getting from my tenure right now. 
So I, um, my school has the titles of tenure. So I started as an assistant and I eventually was promoted to associate. And then um, last year, I think it was, I was promoted to full, Um, but we don't have tenure. We get renewed every year. We get a contract every spring. Um, It should be coming April 1st. If it's not coming, they have to tell me by March 1st, but that's never happened before. So hopefully we're good. Um, But yeah, so that's, and I've heard that that model is like increasingly common. So I think it's, it's great to hear that all of you are at schools that have kind of a traditional tenure process. Um, But I will say that even without it, I don't really, that's not something I worry about because I've not seen them just randomly fire people where I work, there's usually a reason and it doesn't actually tend to happen. So um, yeah, the tenure thing is interesting, but it's good to have really clear information about what you need to do to be promoted. I'm also at a teaching university, um, Matt, and so the requirements to be promoted were really different. Um, Like if, if I did research, they were like, great, that's nice, but what are you like in class and do your colleagues like you? And, you know, are you enriching the university with service? And all of those things actually ended up mattering kind of more than the things I was doing outside the classroom. Yeah. I think no matter where you are in terms of tenure or in my case, non-tenure track with promotion, you have to do this juggling of various tasks because, you know, I have a lot of service, um, requirements and a lot of teaching requirements that other people may not have and no matter what you where you end up I feel like you have to be able to kind of juggle these different activities and really map out your time management like time management becomes like really really important and one of the things that I found myself doing is kind of looking back on the things that I did in my degrees and saying like, what am I using? Like, what is it that's getting me through this and allowing me to do this particular activity in 10 minutes instead of 20 minutes? Or like, that was a question that I had for y'all, which was just looking back on all these things that you have to do now. Um, what are the things that you kind of said, man, I'm really glad I did that, uh, you know, with one of my mentors um, in grad school, or I'm really glad I did this particular activity versus like maybe something you're like, I love the Guidonian hand, but it's not necessarily going to get me tenure to know the Guidonian hand. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I like, I'm, I'm glad that I did prior to like even being at Howard, like throughout grad school, I would really work on my technology and uh, skills and graphic design skills. Um, that's something that was always like a latent sort of like distant passion of mine was art and being able to incorporate that more into the classroom really helps uh, now because it's amazing when people don't know how to use technology like that. And it's something like you do intuitively. Um, you look like a magician. Um, so, but it's, it's like, I, I just press on. Um, but it's one of those things where I'm learning over time that how valuable that sort of thing. So how that sort of thing can be. So I look at things like, like typesetting. Um, I got to the point where I can typeset something and make it, you know, look like it came from the store, but it took like a lot of skills being able to not just make an example, but like if somebody needed a friend of mine, she was doing a lot of Shanker stuff, for instance. And 
I learned how to make shanker graphs and just Sibelius without even using Illustrator. And then I talked to Seth Monahan while he was at Eastman and he did like a pedagogy two class. I didn't take it, but um, he did some stuff with uh, like Adobe Illustrator and all this other stuff and, you know, learning how to use different file types. Um, and yeah, just different types of programs. So now I can go back and recall a lot of that stuff. Even if I don't recycle the exact, PDF for exact like word file or something, I can still go back and use that knowledge. So now if I need to typeset like an entire sonata, I can, I have the shortcuts. I have everything there. I have a keyboard hookup and I can just do everything with MIDI. So it went from taking two hours. I can probably do it in like 15, 20 minutes now. I will say uh photo, I think photo score like saved my life. That is amazing. I just discovered this, like a month or two ago mm. um and i'm putting i'm importing pdfs to sibelius and then be able to manipulate things that's super helpful for if you want them to read transposing scores um like i'm using a quintet piece on my next test um and it has a clarinet in a and it's, i mean it's great for them to be able to transpose but if it's on a test and you want them just to quickly you know know the chords and what it is you can just transfer that so knowing technology like photo score uh, and being proficient with Sibelius is, oh, man, it's a lifesaver. I completely agree with with Richard and Matt about like kind of finding something unique about yourself to, to set yourself apart, you know, in terms of being able to use technology or a research area or something. I think something that I focused on almost inadvertently over the past few years was just networking. Um, I always didn't believe people when they said, oh, it's not what you know, it's who you know, but like it kind of is. I have to say, even just going to SMT and going up to some of my theory heroes at, at the bar at night after the late sessions and just introducing myself, I, I saw my network growing and I, people who I didn't even think knew me would send me an email or say hi at events and things like that. And I think not that that would ever have gotten me a job, but I do think it it helped me grow my network. It helped me reach out to people. It helped me also see myself as a colleague and less of a student before I even became a colleague with these people. Oh, yeah. I was trying to explain that to um, a student yesterday that was talking about, well, should I go to a conference? Should I not go to a conference? And I said, well, you know, like you said very well, it's not going to get you a job. But if you think about walking into an interview of a panel of people, you have no idea who they are. You don't see yourself necessarily internally as their colleague. It could just be like your own confidence that is somehow, you know, fractured in a certain way. Instead of walking in there and saying, you know what? Hey, this person is whoever. I'm totally comfortable around them. Um, and you know they're totally comfortable around you and that, um, that can really help. And like, that's the thing also from the search committee side of things, which is like, we should be doing everything we can do on a search committee to like make everyone feel as you are, we do see you as a colleague. That's the reason why you're like here interviewing, you know, and like making that part of it as, as transparent as we can, you know, um, um, from that side of things. So yeah, and tech skills to add on to that, I agree 100% Richard with everything you said. I found myself, I'm doing some right now recompositions of a lightsaber scene for the TSMT. And 
I found that in my grad school prepared me really well to write down every single part of that 10 second scene. And I had all these uh, parts put in. And then when I went to put that in Logic Pro X, it took me about two hours to do what I did in about 10 seconds on regular music paper with a pencil. So I just thought it's because I didn't have that, like that part of the training was not there. You know, um, and it's not that that was necessarily one of my advisor's faults or something. It's just like we always have to be revisiting this. Like, what is what is what are the things that we really need to get us over that hump? Like knowing some basics of Logic Pro is like is huge. You know, and I asked one of my colleagues for help and he's like, well, what kind of doll do you normally use? And I'm thinking to myself, I did doodle around in GarageBand one day, but I said, oh, I've done some Ableton. And they, well, why don't you pull up Logic? And they don't even know what the logo looks like. I had to go to, to the application and scroll down to the letter L because it didn't know what the logo for Logic looked like. Like, how embarrassing for me as a colleague, somebody who's edited the Avengers, and I'm, like, trying to look for the logo for Logic Pro. You know, I'm like, this is terrible. I, I'm so embarrassed right now. So that part is... Oh, it's missing. It really is. Like even something as basic as Photoscore, I wrote that down because I really haven't had any experience with that either. So there's my confession of the day. But uh, it's so important. It is. It makes life so much easier in a certain way, more efficient. Time is money and time is everything. You've got to get these things done and to have a dictation where it's like you're actually listening to a trumpet player. And gosh, it's so easy to do that if you know some basics for, for a Logic Pro. So, so yeah, it can really be a game changer to know some tech, tech skills. So true. Photoscore, by the way, is Sibelius's um, music scan technology where you can take a PDF and upload it into Photoscore and it will automatically notate it for you. Now you are going to have to fix some stuff. Um, especially if the quality of the PDF is not amazing. Uh, it will, it sometimes is confused by things like triplets or I don't know, there's stuff you sometimes have to fix, but man, is it so much faster than typing it all in yourself? I was going to say too, that one of the things I love is that you all said something that you kind of taught yourself, um, rather than focusing on like grad school, didn't give me this or grad school didn't prepare me for this. You were like, well, this is something I did intentionally in graduate mm. school to prepare myself for the job. And both of those things are important. We should be doing better in graduate degrees about helping people prepare for the actual job market. Even things like why does no master's or PhD in music theory contain any oral skills? <laughs> Something I've thought about a bunch of times, like then your first job, you're teaching oral skills all day and you're like, wow, <laughs> haven't done this in a while. So, you know, things like that. But at the same time, you taking the initiative to say, I don't have this skill is just as important. And it's still, I can attest that it's still going to be important 10 years from now. Like Ben just said, when you're like, man, I gotta, I gotta do this and I don't know how, and I'm going to have to figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, so the fact that you all have that initiative already is great. It's a really good thing. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, there's, there's a lot of stuff we're kind of taught to to like almost excise from your mind throughout that program because you're like bombarded with a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, you're talking about two, three years of coursework and then the comprehensive exams and all this other stuff and the dissertation. And it's very easy to get bogged down into those things. And what you'll quickly realize is that within the classroom, a lot of that stuff, I don't want to say it won't apply, but it's just 
yeah, it's a lot of things that you'll have to just kind of come up with on your own. And there's nothing wrong with that, because one thing I tell every student, no matter how great a program is, you'll never get everything you need from that program. And you shouldn't <laughs> because, I mean, it's music. So over time, you'll learn a lot about different things. You might take a, a course, uh, an elective and like, I don't know, Shakespearean like sonnets or something like that, whatever it is, it's like you'll pick up something outside of your program, outside of the so-called requirements that you're supposed to have to graduate. Um, and yeah, like seek those opportunities out, um, go to like, a, even if it's not on your schedule or something like go to a jazz band rehearsal. I tell my classical piano majors that now, um, cause I taught a class on, um, leashy notation and, you know, R and B and all this other stuff. And, they can play their butts off when it comes to Debussy. But, you know, when it comes to things that's outside their wheelhouse, they're trying to figure out how can you do that? Like, again, it's not magic. It's just one of those things where you won't get that. It's not in a piano major's uh, degree requirements to learn how to read lead sheet notation or how to mm -hmm. articulate it in a idiomatic way for that particular composition. But yeah, you have to seek out those opportunities. Like I did a, I did a show with my sophomores uh, my first year at Eastman. Like it was a show at, down at some bar someplace. And one of them asked me to play keyboard with them. Um, of course, there was still the teacher-student relationship, but it was just one of those things where that opportunity kind of gave me some ideas about like, you know, electronic music and seeing what he was able to do with his stuff. So yeah, seek out those opportunities. And don't be scared of bringing mm -hmm. like your non-degree requirements into your your practice going off of that i also feel like other than just you know reaching out and, and doing all these different opportunities and experiencing things don't be afraid to reach out also in you know in applying to jobs and figuring out grad school i can't tell you how many people i asked about what goes in a cover letter how do i how do i put all this together how do i know what to do and a lot of the more senior scholars were like, eh, it just is. That, that's how it is. You know, you just figure it out. But then a lot of the younger scholars like us who just went through the process immediately sent me their materials, gave me examples, said, hey, send me yours. I'll be happy to edit. And I didn't know that was a thing. It To me, it was an unspoken rule of we don't talk about job applications. We don't share materials. And I, I appreciate our generation who's kind of changing that. I know personally, I would send anybody anything that I have. I will I will be your biggest cheerleader during the process. I will cry with you during it. So, <laughs> and I'm sure everybody here would do the same. Oh, absolutely. You have to have, I mean, you have to teach yourself some things, but also you have to know when to phone a friend and be like, this is not my strength. Can you help me? Mm. Or even just, I've been looking at this cover out, cover letter for two hours and I can't look at it for one more minute. Can you tell me if it makes any sense? I mean, I, yeah, I have a couple friends who read every cover letter, every, you know, iteration of my CV that I ever sent out and vice versa. I've done that for them too. So you're right. You got to have that. No, and, you know, diversity statements can go 10 different ways. Teaching mm -hmm. philosophies can go 10 different ways. And, you know, somebody brings it to me and says, read my, read my diversity statement or read my teaching philosophy. And I think, well, I don't want to over edit this because that's just going to be my teaching philosophy or it's going to be my diversity statement. It's not going to be your diversity statement. So you kind of have to balance that too. Like, you know, how much am I like, if I 
feed this person so many things and then like they go into their interview and, it, and they ask them a question about it then you're like oh gosh i, I over edited your teaching philosophy you know what i mean and so there, there is there is that too um but of course reach out reach out i totally 110 percent agree to reach out and be be transparent gosh yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's so important uh, gosh <laughs> I'm just imagining something like Cyrano de Bergiac kind of a scenario where there's this applicant like texting you, Ben, all the questions <laughs> that they're receiving and they're like right, right. earbud or something. <laughs> Tell me what I, I believe about that. I love helping people out, but I just <laughs> want to put this out there and then like, uh, yeah. I've gotten some that I'm like, you need to really think about like conceptually where are you going with this first? You need to revisit this. I'm not going to give you too much feedback right now. Please send it back to me, you know, like, in a couple of weeks yeah. when you've really taken mm-hmm. some time to truly deeply think about like what you have in here. And I think that's valid to say to somebody, you know, instead of like trying to go back and like rewrite the paragraph or, you know, especially their, the way they have it framed, you know? Yeah. Well, mentorship is so important. And like for the three of you, it seems like you had good mentors who were able mm-hmm. to kind of assist you along the way. So that, I mean, that is so huge. Mm-hmm. So as we kind of are kind of coming to a close, we kind of got to this idea of what, um, you know, what you'd recommend for folks who are kind of maybe are in the same boat that you were in a year ago or something like that. So they're, they're on the job market, or maybe they're getting close to being done with their terminal degree. Um, you know, what is, you know, what's some recommendation that you'd have for someone who's finishing their degree and applying for jobs right now? I think one of the things that I would uh, I mean, it was a few things, but one of the biggest things that I thought about as I was finishing mine was first and foremost, life is not over if the job market doesn't go well. And I think the reason why I say that is very easy to say that as somebody that has a job and that had one before, but really that was something that kept my mind at ease throughout any of those processes, like getting the job at Howard, getting the job at Michigan State. It was just being able to to sit with myself and to know that one, everything isn't guaranteed to everybody. You're talking about how many majors are coming out. I mean, it's, it was theory. So it's not like, you know, microbiology where a bunch of people are doing this, but still you're talking about a terminal degree in a very niche field. Um, and there's still being like uh like a scarcity of jobs. Right. So one of the things, again, just to, to keep that in mind, like um, to keep practicing your craft, keep doing what you're doing, um, I would say advice to people while they're in theory programs, even before they get on the job market, is to kind of hone your skills in other areas. Um, because you might decide not that theory job isn't for you, but you might find yourself within a specialty that requires that um you have some other skills in another area. Um yeah, is that idea that, you know. I think a lot of us go into programs and the first thing you or the the only thing you can think about is like you got your bachelor's and most people will go straight into graduate school. So you don't really, really get a sense of what it's like to have a life outside of school. And that's why I can feel particularly like daunting as far as like getting out, being on a job market, everything, because your life has been pointing towards this one thing. So when it doesn't go well, it it feels way worse than it would or than it should. But again, I know it's easier said than done, but that would be my 
take on uh like one of my takes on just like preparing yourself for for being able to do that to your that confidence that you have when you realize I don't want it's not like a kamikaze or something when you realize you don't have something to lose that when you go out in the job market or something like that being able to just feel that way even if you know okay I can't pay rent or something <laughs> after this you know if I don't get this job but really if you go into it with a sense of confidence knowing that you did your job you got your degree you're you're doing what you're supposed to do um it makes it way easier um to go into a space um and not feel as nervous as you would because you know life um isn't over at the end yeah yeah we are not our jobs we're not our degrees you know that's no you're not yeah, yeah. it's so important to remember i'll mention two things uh kind of going off that, what Richard just said, um, about diversifying yourself. Um, and that's, I think it's really important. Um, something I did a little bit, I wish I had done more with music technology because music technology seems to be such a, a big thing in the music theory world. And especially, um, kind of, um, uh, kind of a music, music technology side along with theory. Um, I mean, I've, I've seen job titles I, I haven't even heard of before on the academic uh, wiki and it's very, very interesting. Um, but that being said, you don't want to stretch yourself too thin. I get that too, but I think at least ha- being aware of like the possibilities um, for diversification is really great. And the last thing I'll say, um, I'll just kind of reinforce what you said about persistence and how um, your degree is, is not uh, who you are. Um, just keep, keep trying. Um, even if you're in a cozy job and you, you have um, ambitions to do something, uh, just keep trying. I know people out there, uh, more than one, uh, who had a really tough time after graduating. Uh, they took a a couple of gap years, at least one or two years, but they kept trying and now they have either lecture positions or tenure track jobs just because they kept uh, interacting with the field, uh, their colleagues, they kept those connections alive. So uh, that's probably the last thing I'll, uh, piece of advice I'd share. I think my two pieces of advice would be First of all, kind of come up with a, not a catchphrase or a slogan, but how you want to market yourself. That's something I think I read in uh, The Professor Is In or or one of those books about the job market. And I went into my last year and my first year on the job market thinking like, who do I want people to think Megan Lyons is? So I kind of had that catchphrase in my head at all times of what was my you know, goals in teaching and what kind of research area did I want people to think of when they heard my name? And I think that kind of helped, at least in my head, that's what helped me on the job market. And then uh, my second piece of advice is try not to take anything personally. I now that coming from me, that's very ironic because my first like rejection email, I cried for a day and I was so sad. And, and then I realized I had probably 40 more of them coming. um, And then that was even more sad, but you know, I, I don't know about you guys, but I kind of have a little of little bit of like survivor's guilt almost mm. because I know so many people, so many friends really who want or are searching for a full-time job or, or a tenure track job or even just a job in academia. And they are all, first of all, very qualified, probably more qualified than I am. Let's just be honest. And it's, there's no reason why I have a job or why, you know, the person next to me doesn't have a job. And I think it's really important to keep that in mind that sometimes it's, it's not you, 
There's literally no reason. Maybe it's because someone on the search committee read through your materials too quickly. Maybe they didn't even watch your teaching videos. That's a big thing on the jobs wiki. Everyone has a conspiracy theory that none of the videos are watched. I mean, it's it's not personal. And I think that's something that it took me a long time to learn. So if anybody out there is struggling, it's it's not you. It's literally not you. You deserve the job and you'll find a job. Yeah, that's that's great advice. As a composer, I mean, I've I'm used to sending out scores and things like that and you know, rejections all the time and I tell my students like, you know, you don't know why they didn't like that piece. They could have just had a really bad Mexican meal and are feeling terrible and then listened to your piece or saw your score. And that's tied to that. You know, you don't know, you have no idea. And all you can do is really just the best that you can. And and that kind of has to be enough. Uh, But that's wonderful advice. Um, That's, that's awesome. So as we're wrapping up, um, we like to ask some rapid fire questions. All right. They might be related to theory or may not. Um, I have mine based off of something you said, Megan, if I can go first to, for the three of you. So this might be hard. So Megan, you're going to have to go first because you probably have oh, one gosh. ready to roll. <laughs> I was intrigued by this catchphrase. So as a theorist, pedagogue, what is your catchphrase? Alliteration bonus points there. But um, <laughs> what, you know, if you had to, you know, say what you're all about in like a sentence, what's that going to be? All right. I have two versions. I have like a real version and a joke version. So the real version is I'm all about engaged teaching, diversifying the curriculum. And I love researching the female singer songwriter and women in music. The joke answer that I tell people is uh, my, my middle initial is E for efficiency. It's Elizabeth, but it's a lot cooler than a basic middle name like Elizabeth. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's pretty good. E for efficiency. Mm -hmm. All right. Matter, Richard. Okay. Um, What's your? I guess phrase? mine. Uh, mine has always been. Was I guess there's a couple of them, but I would say the main one that I use is that life is filled with things that fall under two categories. Um, it's either things that are in your control or outside of it. And if they're in your control, then you can will change and you don't have to worry about it. And if it's outside of your control, then that means you couldn't do anything about it in the first place. So you don't have to worry about it. There you go. Helps you keep a calmer head. Yes. And Matt? Ooh, okay. So catchphrase? Yes. Uh, um, I feel I'm very creative. I like um, improvisation and composing a lot. So I was in my early field. So I'm, I'm probably a creator who wants to explore more so I can create more uh, and share more. Uh, that I guess that's in a nutshell <laughs> what I got. <laughs> that's good. That could be on an inspirational poster or something like that. Oh Create boy! More, share more. There you go. <laughs> okay, I'll take the royalties. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, there are no royalties from this podcast, so it's just not so funny. All good. All good. <laughs> all right, better, Jen. I have one, but Ben, you can go if you do. Go ahead. All right, so you don't have to call out what textbook you're currently using, but if you could change one thing about one of your current textbooks, what would you change? I wouldn't have one. There you go. Same. I don't believe in textbooks. Sorry. (laughs) No, don't be sorry. That's great. I guess I have to say I don't believe either. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Good job, team. I I, I do not have a textbook. I, I pull from, like, yeah, textbooks. 
um, Clinton, Marvin, Lates, all these different ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't have a set. Textbook, yeah. I, other than me feeling like textbooks are, are limiting and none of them are really perfect in my eyes, and I don't think anyone can be, um, uh, I know how much students are paying to go to college, especially my students here at Furman. Shout out mm-hmm. to Music 112. Um, so I don't want to give them any more money to have to spend for their education. So uh, let's see, rapid fire for me. Um, favorite activity to do in um, oral skills, but I know everyone's going to say improvisation. So excluding improvisation for the moment, because we all know improvisation is the best and we all love it. Can I say like two or three? Uh, one of them is the eyes ahead PowerPoint Jen, that you kind of gave me the first time. I love that. I still kind of use that whole thing. Love that. Um, awesome. Call and response. I love that. Just neutral syllable. They sing back on solfege. just like real time dictation. Um, similar to improv and make up something. Um, and then also just ensemble singing. I wish I had more time to do that because they get so fiery up and they're like, this is real music. Oh, now we have four parts. We have harmony. Um, and that's what they're going to be doing in ensemble anyway. So um, I guess that was three things. But in order maybe um i guess the, the only thing that comes to my head is uh my class this past year has started doing uh what we call quicktations uh shout out to ethan Rop that my student named them quicktations uh we got pretty bored pretty quickly of doing these long melodic and harmonic dictations so we do rapid fire really quick ones where they only get one listening and it's it's a challenge but the kids love it because a lot of them have mastered hearing a measure or two and dictating it immediately. So uh, quicktations are my new favorite thing. One that I really like doing my students is um, tempo modulation. Um, Yeah, I find it to be something that's really challenging for every student. I've never had a student just ace it right away. So it's like one of the few things in music theory that I don't have to worry about, like, of course, you're gonna have to scaffold a lot of stuff, but it's 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 a subject that's fun to do, but it also requires that even the best of students they have to actually like sit back and think about it. So yeah, that's great. So as we as we wrap up, maybe we can go around and just let our listeners know um, where they can find you if you want to be found, of course, and. Um, what you might be working on this coming semester, whether that's prepping a new course or some research that you're digging into, um, just let to our, letting our listeners know. Um, I don't use social media at all. I've never used it. Um, so I don't have a way to contact me other than my email that you'll find on Michigan State site. Um, as far as anything that I'm working on now, um, I have a course I'm teaching this semester, Theories, about African-American music. And that's a seminar for our theory majors, but trying to break that down into a course that undergrads can take and that's more interactive where they can actually sort of like replicate in real time a lot of these uh, procedures that create a lot of these art forms. So yeah, just trying to transfer the, the seminar and to make it a more interactive experience for undergrads. Uh- I'll go next. Um, you can find me on Facebook, email, or LinkedIn. Uh, my Twitter is pitiful right now. I only have like three followers. I made it 
to be an academic Twitter account. And then I got a job and I just forgot about it. <laughs> but uh, my interest right now, I'm still continuing the early 20th century music thing. I'm presenting on Not Far Away anymore, finally, <laughs> three papers later. Um, but um, Debussy this spring, so I'll be presenting on that. And I'm trying, I'm hoping, the deadline's coming up for a pop rock proposal for next year, possibly. But we'll see how that goes. I am on social media. I'm not good at it by any means. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore Meg Lyons underscore. Um, and I guess coming up in research land, I'm continuing my Joni Mitchell uh, work with my co-author, Peter Kaminsky. Um, we have a couple articles we're hopefully submitting and I'm branching out into a little bit of new research. I just got a proposal accepted at um, the Rocky Mountain regional conference uh, about Lizzo and the personification of her flute, which is named Sasha and has its own Instagram. So I'm very excited to dive into back into the flute world, I guess, being a flute player. You just made it to the end of another episode of Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review the podcast, and you can always reach us at notedoctorspodcast at gmail.com with comments, questions, or show ideas. Thanks for listening.